Okay, good morning, everyone. Bill Lester here with University of Florida IFAS Extension in Hernando County. And welcome to this week's virtual plant clinic. I'm here today with my regular co-host, Lily Browning. Good morning, Lily. How are you doing? I'm great, Bill. How are you today? Good. It's not freezing cold outside, so I'm actually pretty comfortable today. But it's not tremendously hot either. It's, it's Exactly. Right. It must be three days worth of spring. Yes. <laughs> you know, having some spring is nice. It's that jump full dive in the summer that kind of <laughs> bothers me. So. Yeah, and that still may happen. But today we have a special guest on here. Yes, Dr. Emily Krause is with Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services. Is that correct? Yep, that's correct. And she is the researcher and the person in charge of raising the air potato beetles up in Gainesville. So believe it or not, there is somebody <laughs> who actually works full time raising bugs, which has kind of always been one of my dream jobs. But <laughs> Emily gets to do it. So hopefully everybody listening today is going to have a lot of questions about air potato and we'll talk a little bit about it today um, to answer your questions and tell you how you can get involved with our um, citizen science project. And if you do have a problem with air potato vines, some different ways that you can help control them. So we got Brenda on here, one of our regular viewers and master gardeners. Good morning, Brenda. And somebody here from, see, I told you we had a lot of viewers from Broward County. Broward County yes. First on here. And Buddy is from up in the Panhandle, so I think he lives around Pensacola, Buddy. So I thought it was Tallahassee. But I don't know. <laughs> yeah, either Pensacola or Tallahassee. They're all kind of up there. So <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've driven through many times heading towards Alabama and New Orleans, which is always a lot of fun. So, Buddy, maybe you can go ahead and comment if you have problems with air potato vine up there because well here i'm going to let emily explain just what exactly in the world is air potato vine because okay. there's a lot of confusion and a lot of misidentification of it sometimes too i i was right tallahassee okay buddy lives in tallahassee so sorry <laughs> okay great well the air potato vine its scientific name is dioscoria bulbifera and it came to the United States um, a long, long time ago. It has been in Florida for over a hundred years now. And it came from Asia, Southeastern Africa, and Northern Australia. The population we have in Florida was identified to have most likely come from Asia. And this plant is called an air potato because it's a vine that twines and grows high up into trees and forms these things called bulbs that look like potatoes and hang off the vine in the air. So air potato vine. And it's very problematic because it does climb up to 65 or 70 feet into tree canopies. It shades out the native vegetation. It can totally choke out trees and cause them to fall down. And so it reduces the biodiversity or the number of different species that are supposed to be in an area. Our native species are struggling because this invasive vine, the air potato, is taking over the space that they normally grow in. And so we have been working on this. Um, FDAX, UF, and the USDA have had a collaborative approach to trying to manage the air potato vine for over a decade now. And 
Oh, let's see. Back in 2007, a couple of scientists from FDAX went over to Asia, to China and Nepal, and they looked for natural enemies or things that ate air potato there. They found a few different things, but one of the things they found was Liliaceris cheni, and that's the air potato beetle. And what they did was they saw what it ate there, which was air potato, but then they tried to see if it would eat anything else there. And when they found that it was host specific, meaning that all it ate was air potato, they brought it back to the US and put it in quarantine. And in quarantine in the US, they further tested it on more plants. And after they had tested it on 41 different species, they found that the air potato beetle could truly only live off of the air potato vine. So we say this is very host specific. It's not going to have any non-target effects. The air potato beetle will eat only the air potato vine. And so at this point, then they were able to apply for a permit and began releasing the beetle in 2011 and 12 into the state of Florida. And we continue to grow the beetle here and to ship them out to residents who request them and focus a lot on natural preserves, state parks and conservation areas so that we can manage the vine and at least reduce the negative effects of the vine. We know that we're not going to be able to eradicate the vine, but we want to get its population low enough that the native species, the native species have a fighting chance. So we keep growing about, um, we're averaging about 50,000 air potato beetles a year coming from our facility. And we are shipping them out, um, not only now to Florida, but also into Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi, Texas, and Louisiana, because the vine has now spread into those states. And we're hoping to get some management through the beetles going on in those areas before the vine becomes as big as a problem there as it has become here. And the beetles have been very effective. Um, as they were tested to be host specific, we've seen that um, come to fruition where we have not seen any non-target effects. The beetles have been feeding only on the air potato vine. That's just physically all they're capable of doing. And they have reduced the vine in some areas by as much as 95%. So they have been very effective and they have been a great resource, especially when your other options are either mechanical or chemical control. And we know that chemical control can have other negative effects for the environment. It in, a, in and of itself can kill native plants because it's not very specific. So that's very much a last resort. Mechanical control has been very useful though. Picking up those air potato bulbs off the ground, that stops your invasion or your problem from getting any bigger, which is fantastic. And then digging up the tubers, that's how you would really eradicate the vine. If you dig up the tuber of the vine, it's gone. At least that one specific vine is gone. So, uh, yeah, the mechanical control can be labor intensive and that's why we need the biological control to help because if you have to hire people to do this physical labor and then you're spending money on pesticides, well, it becomes very expensive and it doesn't actually control the vine very well. But the combination of mechanical control and biological control it has been very effective and is much more sustainable for the environment. Yeah, I know maybe some of the people watching remember uh, years ago when they used to have air potato roundups. 
Mm -hmm. yeah. where a group of people would get together at a local park or wild area and they go to dumpster and they go out and pick up all the bulbils or potatoes and fill a couple dumpsters. Does anybody still do that anymore? Sure. So Osceola County Extension just had a weed wrangle and mm -hmm. they filled up the back of my pickup truck um, with just, I think it was um, about 10 people and it took them uh, maybe four hours and they filled up the back of the truck. And another day, Carrie Mentier, who works with UF uh, Entomology down in Fort Pierce, her mm -hmm. lab and mine went out and we did another um, air potato roundup at one of the parks there. And we collected in, I think, three hours with six of us, over 600 pounds of air potatoes. Wow. Um, and so it's, it's some of these areas where uh, beetles haven't returned to or they haven't been released in and there's really no management going on the vines in those areas are still producing a lot of bulbils. And so we really need to keep educating the public and talking to our park managers and land managers about how detrimental the vine can be so we can keep doing some of these mechanical controls because it actually, to me, I enjoy doing the air potato roundups. It's like <laughs> finding Easter eggs. Yeah. <laughs> satisfying. And you're outside, so it's a safe thing to do during COVID. You know, and, and you can feel really good about it at the end, that you've done something to help the environment in that area. You have created more space for native species and helped to control a, a very detrimental pest. Yeah, I know they were always very successful in the past. And I think Gainesville kind of transitioned theirs so that they go and they look for any air potatoes that they can find, but they also target a couple of other invasive plants to pull up and get rid of at the same time. Yeah, when we did them here in Hernando in the past, I believe we did it up at like Chinsigat Hill. Um, mm -hmm. um, and then we ran prizes for like the smallest, oh. um, mobile, the largest, the funniest looking, you know, things like that. Could you tell us, Emily, um, for those of us listening, what is the difference between a bulbil and a tuber? Sure, yeah, that's very important. So, um if you have an existing vine, so a vine that you've seen on your property, the next year, say, let's say in the spring, there's going to be a sprout that comes up from the tuber that's underground. That tuber is a storage organ for the plant and it's perennial. So think of plants that come from bulbs like lilies or things like that. So it's a, like a bulb where it stays underground, it lives year after year, and the plant comes back from it. After that vine has come up in the spring and grown through the summer, sometime, um, depending on where you are in the state, but around June, you'll see little um, er, little potato looking things start to form on the plant and they'll start at the size of a marble and they might get as big as a grapefruit. Those are the bulbils. And so that is the reproductive structure of the air potato vine. So where many plants reproduce by flowers, the air potato vine does that in its native range, but that's not how it reproduces here. Here, it basically makes a clone of itself through producing that potato or bulbul. And when that falls to the ground, it creates a new vine that will then grow up and shoot resources down into the soil that will create a new tuber. So for every bulbul or air potato that falls on the ground, you get a new vine that creates a new tuber, and then that tuber is perennial, 
and each of those new vines is going to create a bunch of bulbils. So that's how your infestation gets worse and worse. And so the difference really between the tuber and the bulbul is that one is perennial and comes back year after year to produce the vine that produces more bulbils, which are the reproductive structure that generate new vines. See, I didn't even realize that. I just assumed that the the bulbils or the potatoes found their way underground and, you know, then the yeah, vine grew out of them. It's really so. cool to see. We should we should yes. send girls some pictures of this so we can share it that we put bulbils on top of the soil here in our facility that we're growing air potato vine because again, that's the only thing the beetles can eat. So I have to grow air potato vine to grow air potato beetles. And we put those bulbils on top of the soil and you can see by the end of the season that they're deflated. It, it's okay. as if everything, yes. inside, all those pieces, they go into the vine and it's just like, poof. Yes, I've run across those. Yeah, see, yeah. Well, now we know. Yeah. And when we did um, at County Extension, we did those air potato roundups or somebody brought a master gardener some for ID or something. All I know is a plastic bag with 10 or so of them was thrown into a corner as what can happen. You know? wow. And six months later, when I came across it in the corner in a plastic bag, no water, no sun. They, they were leafing out, you know, the vines were growing out of them in that, in those circumstances. Yeah, they, this is what <laughs> makes them uh, capable of being so invasive is that they are so hardy. They can have horrible soil conditions or no soil and they'll still sprout. Um, they can have limited sun. They actually really like shady areas. Mm -hmm. I find the most dense populations of the vine in wooded areas um, they really like that shade to get started and then they love the trees to climb up and yeah, they're, they're really hardcore plants. <laughs> <laughs> and they like greenhouses also. Here's a, a picture that you sent me last year. I think you guys growing them in the greenhouses up there in Gainesville. And they seem to do really well when you water them and fertilize them and take really good care of them. Well, they're pretty. They have had very big heart shaped leaves. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, sure. Um, I, yeah, we have them growing in our greenhouse now. Uh, we think we have enough tissue started. As I said, we planted in January. Uh, we'll be releasing beetles into our greenhouse uh, within the next couple of weeks. And so that means a month from now, we'll have beetle, the first beetles ready for distribution. And those will go to the southern part of the state because vines are already sprouting down there. Uh, it wouldn't make any sense for us to start releasing these beetles in the central or northern part of the state as there's no food for them. <laughs> so right. until the end of May or beginning of June, there really isn't enough tissue in the central and northern part of the state for the beetles to want to stick around. They don't have the cues that tell them, hey, you should mate and lay eggs here until there's a good amount of vine around. Um, it was like, as I said earlier to Lily, you know, I'm not going to put my babies in an environment where they're going to starve to death. Right. <laughs> yes. And here's a picture now of I what beetles look like. And yeah. they're, they're very attractive beetle. They're either red or tan. And I'll let Emily tell you the difference between the red ones and the tan mm -hmm. ones. It's the same species, but a slightly different, you know, biotype. Exactly. And they're fairly large, about what, half inch long? Yeah. Half inch. Yeah, I would say a half inch. Um, 
They're, so these are what we call the Chinese biotype, and you can tell that they're bright red. And we call them the Chinese biotype because they were located in the native range of China. And um, the other beetles that we brought back, we brought back from Nepal. And their, their wings on the top are hardened, as most beetles are, and we call those elytra. So this, the top part of their back that's red, that's actually a, a kind of a, a wing. And in the Chinese, that's red. And in the Nepalese or the Nepal biotype, it's a kind of a coppery, tan, golden color. <laughs> and it's, they're, like Bill said, they're the same species, but because they grew up in different areas of the world, they've just got a very slight different genetic basis that gives them their color. And so they have the same hosts, they have the same life cycle, they can mate with each other and produce offspring. And they do sometimes here, we get them mixed up, but they don't care. And so you end up with some beetles that have an in-between kind of a shade. We've actually had one or two that have one red wing and one gold wing, which is- I saw a picture of that before. Yeah, it's kind of funny when that happens, but they do this, they have the same behavior. The adults eat the leaves, they lay their eggs on leaves that they bite the leaf veins of and the leaf kind of cups up and then they lay their eggs underneath there and that protects the eggs from harsh sun and rain and other predators. Then those eggs eclose or hatch and the larvae begin to eat the leaves. The adults kind of eat holes into the leaves so you'll see the big holes whereas the larvae do what we call they skeletonize the leaf mm -hmm. and so they make the leaf look like lace so some part of the leaf is left behind but it turns brown and you can kind of see through it like you could see through chiffon or lace yeah it's beautiful this that's what the adults do they just eat these big holes and you can see the black material there that's their frass or their poo so they eat and they poo like babies yeah. just <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we had an episode a couple of weeks ago where the topic of poo came up for about an hour. Oh yeah, we talked, we talked, we talked about it all in over an hour. Yeah. I know what um, people are going to ask, um, so I'm going to go ahead before they ask it, for those unfamiliar with this, is this the same thing as kudzu? No. The air potato vine is not, not in the same genus that is not related to kudzu. They are very different. Um, if you look at pictures side by side at the leaves, you will be able to tell that they have different shapes. They have different growing attributes. Um, there are a couple other things that get confused with air potato vine. There's something called the winged yam. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, the winged yam is actually in the same genus. Um, air potato vine is Dioscoria bulbifera. The winged yam is Dioscoria alata. And we have an air potato, um, an air potato guide on the FDAX website, and it's called "Do I Have Air Potato?" And it has pictures of some of these different plants, and you can look at this guide and discern whether you have winged yam, morning glory, kudzu, or air potato. Those are those three are are really often confused, and I even have people ask me. Um, about skunk vine or muscadine grape because there are other vines that even though um, the grapes are, are native, 
they can still be annoying. So just because something isn't invasive doesn't mean that we don't want to manage it sometimes. And I can understand that. But there's definitely um, a need for um, those of you who think you might have the vine to, to check out our our guide on do I have air potato? Uh, because if you're, even if you are well-versed in plants, uh, it can be confusing. When I first mm -hmm. came to the facility in 2019, I fed a bunch of our beetles Dioscoria alata, the winged yam, and they didn't eat it. And I was like, what's wrong with my beetles? Why aren't they eating it? Well, I wasn't feeding them air potato vine. And so they do look really similar, even to someone who has a degree in plants. <laughs> yeah, I know every year we will get emails or contacted by people who say, I ordered the beetles and released them and they're not working. Yeah. Send me more beetles or what's wrong with my beetles. And then it's like, mm, can you send us a picture of your air potato vines? And it may be the wild muscadine. I've seen people, and sometimes the vines look very, very different. Yeah. But other times where it might be a very closely related plant. And I know last year we got contacted from out of state. And we even were contacted from Washington, D.C. Right. Yeah, somebody said, I think I have air potato vine in my yard. And we're thinking, well, that's too far north. Yeah. And it's pictures. And she had air potato vine on the side of her yard. It's probably died. Would be yeah. like because it's too cold up there. For I, I've seen it up north, but I, I've seen um, people purposefully have it as a uh, potted plant in the summer. And like they yeah. put it in a pot and let it grow on their porch, but it it dies out, you know, by the following year or they bring it in the house or something like that. Yeah. You know, I don't think yeah. it's going to become um, much of a problem up north because as far right. as I can tell, if the bulbs are in a zone where it continues to freeze or they have below freezing temperatures, they don't seem to survive. Um, we have put bulbs in the freezer to see if they'll later sprout and freezing definitely can kill them. So I think that for now we have a little bit of an environmental barrier. If things keep warming up, I don't know right, what right. might happen. But. See, that's what I'm thinking. Maybe it's warm enough now in DC that that allowed that to happen at least for a period of time. And now we've just had this big winter yeah. rush to go through. Yeah. Like I said, we've frozen the bulbs. But the tubers being underground, they're probably a little more freeze hardy than the bulbs are. And so right. that's something that I don't think has been tested yet. So uh, maybe this summer I'll freeze some tubers and, and see how well that how well they can tolerate it. Right. Yeah, try storing them at different temperatures and find out what the, the fatal what their threshold is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that would yeah. definitely be interesting. <laughs> Well, here, let me put on my first plug for our citizen science program that involves everybody. Everybody who wants to join is more than welcome. If you go to airpotatobeetle.com, very easy to remember, and check out our website, you can sign up to be a part of the Air Potato Patrol. And what this is, is we do have a lot of um, training videos on there, and we do have a video on other vines and how to tell the difference between air potato vine and other vines and air potato vine when it twists around the stem it goes clockwise counterclockwise there's another one that goes the other yeah. direction. so um, there's ways that you can tell for sure whether you have air potato or maybe a closely related other type of yam 
or maybe you just have wild muscadine or kudzu or something totally different. But our uh, citizen science program, you go ahead and send us your contact information and then several times a year, we'll send you a survey. And what you're gonna do is you're gonna watch your own little plot of air potato, which is generally in people's backyards, sometimes in a empty lot nearby. And we ask questions like, what time of year did your air potato plants start to sprout and grow? Because we don't have, or I know that you didn't have a really clear idea of exactly when on average they start growing in different parts of the state or even in different states. Yeah, so when I, as I said, I, I came into this program uh, at the end of 2019 and I had moved here to Florida from South Africa and I wasn't familiar with the air potato vine. I have been working with biological control and plant insect interactions. So I was certainly well versed and had the background to get into it, but I wasn't familiar with this specific system. And so I had a lot to learn. And I had found from the literature that um, there was a, a bit of a gap where people um, hadn't investigated exactly when the vine came back versus when the beetles came back. And last year we went to 12 different sites around the state every two weeks and waited for the vines to come and for the beetles to come. And so now we have a much better idea um, where we see in the north and central part of the state, there's, it's pretty close where in the north we see uh, vines coming back in April and beetles showing up in early June, maybe late May. In the central part of the state, we are expecting vines to start coming back at the end of this month or beginning of next month, and then beetles again sometime in late May or early June. Um, but down in the southern part of the state, there are vines already sprouting. And the more information that we can get to get a bigger picture is always helpful. It More information is just always good. Uh, the more that we know, the more that we can think of ourselves to try to manage the invasive vine. And I think it's important that you mentioned um, that gap between when they start growing and then when the beetles start consuming them, because I know Bill gets phone calls all the time. I have the vine and there's no beetles here. And he always tells them, you know, give it some time, wait till at least probably the end of June, see if you see some activity going on. Because as you already mentioned, um, they're not going to, you know, they're, what they're probably doing is letting the vine grow while they're making babies <laughs> so that their babies have something to eat when they hatch out. So. Sure. So we have beetles that we have kept outside over winter, and we have some beetles that we've kept indoors at slightly higher temperatures. And only after we brought them in and either the ones that were indoors, we raised them up to 72 degrees or the ones outside we brought in. And those that were inside that never experienced any of those really cold temperatures we had this year, um, they have started now mating. And so it took them a few weeks at 70 degrees or 72 degrees to start eating more tissue and then to finally start mating. And so outside, it's still pretty chilly. The beetles aren't even thinking about coming out of the ground yet or coming out of their diapause or hibernation state. So their bodies physiologically change in the winter. They very much like a bear go to sleep for the winter. And so they're not even thinking about coming out yet. And when they do come out after it's been warm for a while, 
they need to kind of wake back up, you know, they need their cup of coffee. When, so they're going to need to eat some air potato vine before then themselves have the energy to fly around, to find a mate. We know that they will take a few weeks to build up those resources. Female beetles, um, much like other insects, have to have the energy to make eggs. It takes a lot of energy for a beetle to reproduce. So those females need to eat a lot of food so that they have the fat and energy resources to put into making eggs. So it just it takes them a while to, to wake up, to eat, to find a mate. And by the time all of that has happened, the vines have come up and started to grow. And what we saw a lot this summer was that in most areas, we didn't start finding eggs until about 20% of our plot was covered with air potato vine. So they, they like to have a lot of tissue before they lay their eggs. And that's why air potato beetles are part of a control and management technique and not an eradication technique because they're not going to eat themselves out of house and home. They're not going to come in and start eating the vine um, extensively before it's even had a chance to grow. They have lived in their native range for thousands of years with this vine and they have a synchrony with each other. And so they're going to, to go along with that uh, genetically predisposed behavior that the vine's going to come up, the beetles are going to start eating, and finally they come together, their life cycles sync up where the beetles will lay their eggs on the vines and the larva will defoliate the vines, which is really great because when the larva do this, it massively reduces the amount of bulbils that the vines produce. Mm -hmm. So that is a huge benefit in reducing um, or stopping infestations from getting any worse. So between picking up bulbils that were there, digging up tubers and having the beetles stopping the vines from producing more bulbils, we can, we can definitely do a lot towards limiting the extent of these um, invasions. And even in some areas, you can get to the point where you can eradicate them, but it does require that you do dig up those tubers. Yeah, I've spoken with homeowners who the beetles will definitely help because the beetles do slow down or stop bulbil production and they knock the plants back. And homeowners with just a small infestation in their yard, you know, just the normal backyard, you have a few air potato vines. It kind of gives them a little breathing room and gives them a chance to go out there and begin digging them up because that could be a lot of work and that's you know yeah. one tuber at a time and they can be big and you mm -hmm. got to get the whole thing you can't just dig up half of it you have to dig around and get the whole thing up but it gives them breathing room to bit by bit dig them up and a, a number of people like i said with a very very small infestation with the help of the beetle have been able to completely eradicate it from their yards, which is great to hear. Yeah. And I'm sure that depends on what kind of situation they live in. If they back up to woods or something, you know, that's gonna be a continual fight. But if they back up to another yard that is also fighting the same fight, then, you know, they can be more successful. Yeah, because they spread. And you know who the worst offender about spreading them is? Us, people. I looked at, uh, well, Lily and I looked at a new home site that was in the process of being built, and they had obviously brought in fill dirt to raise up, um, up an area that was right on the Wikiwachi River, and there mm -hmm. are already air potato vines popping out of the ground. 
So yep. it's contaminated fill dirt that moved from point A to point B and just basically blessed the new homeowner with air potato in their soil. And that is not the first time that I have heard that story, contaminated filter or even compost. Um, depending on how you compost, you I was just, yeah, I was going to mention when you pull it up, any, any bit of this um, plant at all, you put that in a trash bag and you take it to the landfill. It is not compostable. It's not, it is compostable, but it's not a good idea to compost that unless you just want to keep spreading it. Yeah. yeah, very important here in Hernando County. If you're dealing with an invasive plant like air potato, and we have problems with Brazilian pepper and white lead tree, you need to bag that up and put it in with your household trash because we need that to go in the lined um, landfill up there at the dump. Otherwise, if you take it, right. right. Then it might get only partly composted. It's going to get ground up somebody's going to go to the landfill and get a pickup truck worth of mulch and now they end up with your invasive plants so you don't want to share those kind of things and if you do have the ability to bag it and put that bag in the freezer for three days that's the ultimate that is that's really great if you can do that um the freezing will definitely uh kill the bulls i mean i do need to do a little bit more research um to to have that finite timeline, but right now we believe that three days in a freezer is sufficient. So if you are able to throw it in a freezer for three days before you take it out to the trash, that's even better. Okay. Here, let me find a few more pictures here. And I guess another question people are gonna ask because probably our second biggest problem vine is the skunk vine. Do we know if anything is happening to help us with the fight against skunk vine? We are not doing anything at FDAX as far as I know um, at the moment. Um, but it is definitely, it is a huge problem and is becoming coming more and more um, into the view of the public. People are starting to recognize what it is. Um, I, I need to look up a little bit more about the uh, taxonomy uh, with um, species, you know, if they're closely related to other plants that are native that we wouldn't want to damage, it's more or less impossible to use biological control because it's really hard to find something that would be host specific to skunk vine, but not eat something else that's in the same genus. So that would be challenging. And as I only work with invasive species, I, I wouldn't be on that, but there might be other other folks within FDAX who work on pest management and over in botany um, mm -hmm. may eventually have their hands in it. But so far I haven't heard anything. Yeah, I know it's up on UF's website as a noxious weed and has some nice pictures for identification. Mm -hmm. We have, well, there's a lot of urban legends out there as to, you know, that's what people are afraid of with the um, air potato that it'll turn into the love bug, which they believe that UF introduced and got out of control. I'll let you um, address that one. Right, so um, the love bug um, came into Florida through the airstream, basically through the jet stream. They're decent flyers. They can be carried easily by the wind. They were native um, to North America and have just expanded their range from the west to the east. So. 
They are not an invasive species. They were not created by UF. They have naturally arrived through for through natural processes, through coming over on the wind and expanding their range. They are a nuisance, but they aren't actually displacing any other species. They just bother us because they get on our windshields and whatnot. So and they were not created in a lab to control mosquitoes. No, no not at all. They are, they, they are their own happily um, yeah. evolved natural species that has come over and just made its way here. So no, they're in no way did anyone intentionally create or distribute them. Right. And these air potatoes, like you said, were vetted for a very long time. And even you and your own personal experience found out you fed them a close relative and they wouldn't touch it. Right. Yes. Right. And I know they, yeah, they started out trying to give it close relatives and made like a circle around. And then they also made sure they didn't eat um, corn or soy or something very important, you know, to our crops. Just yeah. threw that out there just to make sure. Exactly. Yeah. That's so yeah. they start, like you said, they start in the center with things that are closely related. Like that would be things in the same genus. And then they go out and it's things in the same family and then out and things in the same order and then things that aren't even related but are agriculturally or economically important. And so uh, there were over 40 different species tested and it took, um, let's see, uh, something like eight years of testing to ensure that we would be able to safely release them. There is another beetle that's closely related to the air potato beetle. And whereas the air potato beetle that we have released eats the leaf tissue, this other beetle eats the bulbils. And this beetle has been in quarantine in the United States for a full decade now. And we have finished testing it for host specificity and are now sure that it, like the air potato beetle, this air potato bulbul eater, eater is very host specific and has just gotten a permit for release as well. So we are going to have a second biological control agent available, but it will take another couple of years for us to increase its population and start to get it distributed. It, it, as fast as insects can grow, it still takes us time to work out some tweaks and things and make sure we have the right conditions to grow tens of thousands of them. Yeah, because you have to raise them on a mass scale to be able to put them in containers and ship them around the state. Yes, it doesn't really do us much good to just grow, you know, even five to 10,000 of them. That's not enough to start or establish a population. We want to send out enough beetles that they will have a population that survives the winter, comes back the next year, mates and establishes another generation without our help. And in order to do that, we will have to release hundreds of thousands of beetles over the course of several years. And that's what's happened with the air potato beetle. Uh, we have now released, oh my gosh, um, I, I bet we have released close to a million air potato beetles. And yeah, and so they are, they're just now considered to be established in central and northern Florida. Previously, they had been considered to be established in Southern Florida, but this last year, as I was doing field work, I did not find any native populations in the Southern part of the state. So we are going to be working on 
putting an influx of beetles into the southern areas. Um, I'm not sure what happened, if it was um, a hurricane event, some kind of weather event, if there was a mosquito spraying an abatement program that uh, killed them. I have sprayed air potato leaves with pyrethroids, which is the insecticide they use to kill mosquitoes. And even 30 days later, the leaves that got fed to air potato beetles still killed more than half of them. So we really need to work with the, the mosquito and public health people to make sure that as they control the mosquito population, they don't accidentally control our air potato beetle population. What, um, aside from running into trouble from man-made issues, do they have any predators here? Yes, anoles love them, Cuban tree frogs love them, iguanas like them, we've seen birds eat them, um, a lot of any kind of reptile that can catch them basically will eat them. So there are checks and balances. That's, that's absolutely. Bill, I just emailed I saw you. Spider web a number of years. So obviously spiders will catch them in their web and eat them like any other beetle. Yep. Anything that we would consider a generalist predator, meaning any kind of uh, bird, lizard, spider, those things don't eat just one kind of thing. They eat a lot of different things and the beetles fall perfectly into the category of something they find yummy. <laughs> Ooh, Chinese food. That's the right side. Yeah. Bill, <laughs> so um, I just emailed you a bigger picture of the skunk vine. And Mark, I tagged you on Facebook so you can see a bigger picture of the skunk vine that he was asking about. And yeah, I found this one and it shows up a little bit small. Yeah. Skunk vine, air potato has a large heart-shaped leaf. Mm. Skunk vine is a narrower leaf and it will flower during the summer and it gets very small bell-shaped flowers and bees will visit the flowers and the flowers eventually turn into little berries that fall off and give you even more skunk vine after that. So they really don't, they look, they could be confused with one another, but they don't look all that similar. Oh, yeah. The skunk vine has much smaller leaves, much, yeah. Mm -hmm. Air potato is a lot prettier than the skunk vine. Well, and I have found it. can vary in their size quite a bit. Yeah. Some air potato leaves can get very, very large. Yeah. And other ones tend to be a little bit smaller. So. Um, University of Florida has a noxious weed list. So if you Google UF and noxious, N-O-X-I-O-U-S, weeds, um, Sunfine is one of their um, focused noxious weeds, and it has multiple different pictures. Skunkvine is a little bit hard because it doesn't have super characteristic leaves. They can look kind of different on different plants, have yeah, different yeah. shapes, whereas air potato vine is very consistent. It's always got this heart shape with a bit of a point at the bottom. Um, and I think that uh, you can distinguish it, you can distinguish the two very easily if, if you Google one and then Google the other and look at the two pictures, you'll- Or yeah, just break off a piece and if within a half an hour you are smelling something very foul, <laughs> you know you have the skunk vine. Yeah. So we, um, used to have a director, Bill worked under that director as well, who would find it fun to hide skunk vine like in different desk drawers in your office. Oh, or something. 
looking all over the place for it. It wasn't, it's not pleasant. It doesn't take long once it's detached from the vine. It's like, yeah, that smells like really old diapers. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh. Were you able to see that picture I sent you, Bill? Or can you copy it? No, no that's, but I do have that's a air potato. How large air potato leaves can get. I remember that I had this picture. Yes, yeah. I recognize the rings. That's my laboratory technician, Cassandra, Cassandra Kelm. Many who have worked with the FDAX request and air potato mine reporting system have communicated with Cassandra. She does all of our shipping. She literally spends her entire summer on the phone and on email talking to residents and land managers to try to help us get the beetles distributed. And so, yes, that was her hand on one of the vines in our greenhouse. I have seen uh, leaves even bigger than that down in Miami. And oh, one other thing I wanted to say before we go is that in the north and central part of the state where we have our field sites and where we know beetles are doing really well, most of the bulbs that we find now, the biggest ones I find are like the size of my fist. Down in Miami, where the beetles haven't been doing as well, I have found bulbs that are almost like half the size of my head. You know, they're huge because the beetles haven't been putting stress on those vines. And so those vines are really healthy. And man, I that's what all I'm going to be doing this summer is trying to figure out why they aren't established there. And we're going to be throwing a lot of beetles at that area to see if we can get them to regenerate on their own or if we can through releasing them and coming back and visiting the site make a connection between why they haven't come back yeah okay there we go that's the skunk vine yes yeah and it is generally the leaves are this it's even hard to tell from this picture but the leaves are you know, just like a few inches um, long, usually. And you're right, there's different varieties where it might look slightly different than that. But if you let it go to flowering, it's gonna have those tubular flowers there. And I have found this much more difficult to control even than the air potato. Right. I, I used to back up to woods and I could keep the air potato out of my yard because it's bigger, you can see it, you can pick up the potatoes, you can keep control of that. This all you have to do is mow and you spread it everywhere and it comes up, you know, it starts growing underground. And this one is really difficult. (laughs) And it can be really tough because a lot of people have it where it'll get in their hedges and grow their hedges. You can't spray an herbicide on it because you'll damage your hedge along with killing the skunk vine. So the only choice and people don't like me to say this, but your only option is to, get down your hands and knees, you get under the bushes and keep pulling it up, physical removal. It's good stress relief. (laughs) And beautiful weather today for it too. And remember, Emily, before we started, I told you 1045, the dogs would start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My my coworkers are getting a little rambunctious there. Well, looking at this picture of the skunk vine, um, as I said, the flowers are very uh, a very distinguishing characteristic. Air potato vine will not have those flowers. 
And these leaves are more elongate, so they're much longer and narrower than air mm -hmm. potato vine. And also the stems look very different. The air potato vine stem is twining and green, whereas you can see these are kind of brown. And so, like I said, once you're looking at a picture, it's really easy to pick apart those characteristics and see that they're very different plants. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a couple of our listeners have them in their azaleas and other plants and hedges. I have them in my holly hedge out front, along with several other annoying vines, but no air potato. Although I have to tell you, I you know I live in a suburban house and yard, and I've never had air potato. Although last year I went to a local organic farm, and they were kind enough to give me because when COVID hit, I started to put together a vegetable garden. They were I kind enough to give you air potato. <laughs> <laughs> compost, which I worked into my garden and worked um, in, and I had a half a bucket. The dogs had dug a hole up around the air conditioner, so I threw the half a bucket in there. And darn if I didn't get an air potato vine, and it should be coming back again this spring. Yeah. Are you going to answer Corey's question, Bill? Which one is that? Oh, about whether it initially escaped from Hernando. It was, and I'm not positive about this account, but it is. It's true. Okay, this is one of those that sounds like a legend, but it's true. Um, the um, plant, what's it called? The plant materials. Yeah, the, the USDA Research Center here in yeah. and we're, we're talking about 1902 or something, or you know, sometime in the early um, 20th century they were researching it as a fiber crop like rope N not to eat but it, you know like rope and um this one is true yeah we, we're ground zero <laughs> for this kind of vine yeah because think, keep in mind things like kogan grass and kudzu were originally brought here and they were looked at for soil fertilization, like erosion yeah you can find information where kudzu was celebrated and touted that it was going to save all the all the um, roadsides because you got to remember they were clear cut usually to yep. some kind of timber operation or mining operation or something so like kudzu was going to they thought it was a good answer so which yep. is why now when we bring in other species it's vetted for many, many, many years and tested in many, many ways. Yeah, we don't we don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah. gets an idea like around is never a good idea. Plants should just stay where they are. <laughs> hey, let's bring these plants in from the other side of the world and they'll be great. And it's like, yeah, we need to research it for about 10 years to find out exactly the impacts that it might have. Yes, and I think Lily and I had to go look at somebody's yard and it was in Brooksville and it had a creek running through the yard. It was a pretty deep creek. And of course, the, the banks of the creek were falling in and they had um, coven grass there. And the coven grass did a fantastic job of stabilizing the banks. The first time ever in our life we hated to do it, but we had to say, no. keep it there because right. it's the only thing holding you know everything together. But don't plant Kogan grass because it's no. a really, really, really bad invasive, but it was actually effective at doing what it was intended to do in that circumstance. So. Yeah. I think Brenda, Brenda, Brenda mentions that we up here in the Royal Highlands, we really don't have um, very many 
much air potato either, but we do have plenty of Kogan grass up here. So everybody's got something. Yeah, I don't uh, know of any any kind of a recent uh, plant um, bringing in a plant for any reason that has been approved of. So most of the plants that we have that are invasive have occurred in the 1800s or early 1900s when people were starting to really be have the ability to move around the world and we're moving these things around. Um, that's one of the early, the first world fairs, they were giving water hyacinth away to people and spreading it sure. around the world. But if you look at biological invasions now, in the last 50 years, almost all of the invasions are accidental and a lot of them are arthropods or pathogens that have somehow come along on an export product like timber or fruit, something agricultural. So I think that through trial and error and mistakes in the past, we've definitely learned that it's best when things stay where they are native to. And there are very few instances where we can move something from its native range to another area for biological control, but that requires a decade of research before it can happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to make sure they don't acquire a taste for another type of plant. Yeah, we don't want to create new problems. We're just trying okay. to solve the problems we already have. <laughs> we have more than enough to keep us busy. Yeah, and and one one way to look at it is you, um, you know, not everything that was brought over causes. Obviously, there are plenty of exotic oh, things yeah. here. Case in point, are the honeybees. You know, they are not native to this area, and the Europeans brought them over because they were trying to grow vegetable crops that are not native to here. So therefore, our native bees don't recognize them. You know, so therefore, they brought in the the, the European honeybees, and Citrus. Nobody, nobody, you know, thinks badly of the European honeybees. Well, azaleas aren't native to Florida either, but right. we have a lot of things that are not native um, that we don't consider invasive. If something has come from another area and it doesn't um, reproduce readily or it can't disperse its um, its berries or seeds or whatnot, then we have some of those things that we consider non-native but established or naturalized because even though we're growing them here and they're not native to here they aren't inhibiting native species from growing so they're not having a negative impact on human health the economy or the environment and those they're, are the they're well-behaved non-natives <laughs> like bill and i we're we're well-behaved non-natives to florida <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. Although I've been established here for quite a, quite a long time. Yes, me too. So do, there's another question from Corey about the European honeybees uh, competing with native bees. So um, the European honeybees don't directly, as far as I know, compete with the native bees, but because people favor them over native bees, they tend to do, they tend to fare better. So a lot of people, when they think about, oh, the bees are dying, they're only thinking about honeybees. But actually when scientists say, oh, the bees are dying, we're thinking more about solitary bees and other native bees to the United States. We have so many native pollinators that are suffering. So um, unfortunately there just needs to be more outreach on the fact that things that are negatively affecting pollinators 
are not just the European honeybees. And so we need to really do a lot of work to educate our communities and our neighbors and our friends on the fact that all of our pollinators are important and that we can't just focus on one bee species. Now, the um, European honeybees, Apis mellifera, uh, they're, they're going to be here forever. They're, and we wouldn't want to er eradicate them or control them because they do provide a lot of benefits. But we do want to promote habitat for the native bees. So native wildflowers, things that our na na native pollinators can feed on. Um, you may have seen those little bee houses where they have all of the circles next to each other. That creates really nice habitat for solitary bees. So um, we definitely want to support all of our pollinators right, 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 right. generating this very happy pollinator habitat. And, and you, yeah, you pointed out they're not really in competition with each other because I think only bumblebees are the only other um, um, like social bees that live like in hives. All of our other native bees are solitary. They live yeah. in holes in the ground and, you know, they live a completely different kind of life. But we need all of them, the all of them together mm -hmm. to... You can't, that can't be right because there's always an exception. But in general, yeah, yeah I think that's right. Yes. <laughs> yes. And since you brought that up, uh, if you go to my Facebook page, you'll see a uh, the class I had yesterday. You'll see a recording of it in which a uh, nature photographer and I, a friend of mine, discussed kind of a journey we went on last year. And it's like a photo journey of all the different wildflowers that happen to be growing on the sides of the roads and maybe in your yards or other places and how extremely important it is to keep them around for our native pollinators. So there you go, segue right into that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there is Lily's email address if you need to get in touch with her about any of her classes. And I already put this up. Let me put it up again. If you need to get in touch with Emily because you have any other questions about um, air potato vines or air potato beetles, there's her contact information. Hey, hers is long too, Bill. Pardon me? You always complain my email's too long. I said Emily's is long too. <laughs> yeah. It is. Mine is nice and short. I can remember mine. I can't remember <laughs> yours. <laughs> and you there's don't my have email to if you have any other questions, you need to get in touch with me. If you'd like to, if you have any other lawn and garden kind of questions, uh, go ahead and squeeze them in the comments really quick. Or you can always call our office 352-754-4433. And Teresa will most likely answer the phone. And if she can't help you out, she'll, you know, point you in the right direction, either to me or Lily or whoever can answer your question. And if you are interested at all, or if you have air potato vines on your property, please check out our website, airpotatobeetle.com, and consider joining the Air Potato Patrol. It's that time of year again for the air potato to come out and us to start promoting it and get some more people to sign up for it. It really does help uh, answer the kind of questions that Emily has with researching, and it helps with our outreach also. A lot of good information on there, a lot of free tutorials you can watch about how to properly identify air potato, how to identify the beetles. We have videos on how to tell if you have the beetles on your plants or not, because sometimes we get calls where people will say, I have air potatoes, send me some beetles. And we'll say, well, go outside and check your plants to see if you have any beetles. 
go out there and look for holes in the leaves because there's really almost nothing here in Florida that eats the leaves other than air potato beetles. Mm -hmm. So if you have a lot of holes in those leaves, you have beetles. And nine times out of 10 people email me back, hey, I went outside and looked and I have the beetles. You have to look pretty closely if you don't have a whole lot of them because mm -hmm. they're pretty large and they're bright red. But if you don't have many of them, they hide on the undersides of the leaves and you really have to dig through there to see if you have them or not. So like I said, we have plenty of instructional videos, a lot of really good information in there, all free. So, you know, even if you don't want to join the Air Potato Patrol or don't want to participate and help us out, you still have access to all the information and uh, our email so that you can contact us with specific questions about that. And one more thing here, if you're ever wondering about any of our upcoming classes, if you just go to Hernando Extension, all one word, .com, there's a full listing of all of my upcoming classes, all of Lily's classes, my boss Jim Davis has classes coming up, our Sea Grant agent, Brittany has classes on horseshoe crabs and all kinds of other stuff that swims around in the salt water. Mm -hmm. She knows a lot more about that than I do, but all of our classes are all listed there and it will tell you if it's gonna be on Facebook Live or Zoom or some other kind of platform. It's hard for us to keep it straight some days. So go there and everything you need and all the links are gonna be right there. And we got a couple more comments that rolled yeah, in here. I think Brenda is questioning whether or not we behave. <laughs> <laughs> and here's somebody who found Dioscorea alata in Spring Hill. And I know that we do have it here. Mm -hmm. Not a lot. You have to go out in the woods sometimes to find it, but it is here. I've seen it. Yeah, I've seen it around. And sure, you can contact our office for questions about soil testing. If you live in Pasco, a lot of people, because we are so close to the county line, it's more convenient for some people to come and see us. Just be careful on that you'll, yeah, that you, you write down, you want the copy of your um, results to go to Bill, otherwise it's gonna go to Pasco County then. Um, and so you'll call Bill and he won't have it. <laughs> yes, yeah, so you can you, just go ahead and call our office but be sure when you fill out the form that you put down that you want the results sent to Hernando County. That way the results come to me. And if you have any questions and you call me, I can actually pull up your soil test results. <clears throat> and Jody has a totally unrelated question here. So it's only fair that we squeeze in at least one and uh, we'll see if Emily wants to answer this one. Do Q-tips count as selective pollinators to cross Roma tomatoes with early girl? I mean, that's um, that's our uh, selective agriculture at its best. That's what humans do. So I, I certainly think that you consider us and our various tools as pollinators. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Q-tips work very well if you have to hand pollinate something. If you grow squash in a greenhouse, you have to hand pollinate it and Q-tips work really, 
Q-tips or a really, really tiny paintbrush work really well. Yeah, I've had better luck with paintbrushes, but uh, I think it's kind of one of those things, this is where art and science collide, and it's going to be whatever your hands personally can manage and manipulate. Mm -hmm. So sure, you could try cross-pollinating two varieties of tomatoes, and then save the seeds from the tomatoes they produce, and there's gonna be a lot of genetic variation in there. It make you're going to get the Roma tomatoes that were the mommy and early girls that were the daddy or vice versa. And you're going to get a lot of genetic mixtures. So plant breeders will do that and they will plant literally a million seeds and just they pick the best plants, the most disease resistant, the ones that grow the healthiest, get the best looking tomatoes, whatever they're looking at. And that's how they breed new varieties. So, yeah, a Q-tip works. Um, Corey says a feather works also, or I've seen for pollinating tomatoes in general in a greenhouse, you can use a electric toothbrush that I've heard works well. Mm -hmm. that, that's kind of simulating what a buzzing bee you know, would do. Exactly. It simulates what a bumblebee. <laughs> I hadn't either, but I picked up on what it would do. So, yeah. So, Emily, you can say that you actually learned something from being here today. I did. <laughs> That's my and favorite. We all part. learned a lot from you. She's going to be brushing the teeth of her plants now. Of course. <laughs> but fortunately, air potato vines do not flower in Florida. Have you found any? any I have. Um, it was funny because last good. year I, or what was it? <clears throat> when I, right when I first came into the program, I had been here only for a couple of weeks and everyone was saying, oh, they don't flower here. And I'm trying to learn all the things about the system. And one of the first plants that I find on my own has these beautiful white flowers on it. So where was oh, it? No. Where, it was where in the state? In Gainesville. In Gainesville. Gainesville. Oh, yeah. I thought it was be in um, Miami or something. Yeah, but that was the only one that I have seen ever. <laughs> so it was funny that I found it within two weeks of starting my job here that I've never seen it again. <laughs> So if you guys ever see air potato flowering, be sure to get some good pictures and a location and send it to us. Is it like a like a morning glory kind of flower? Um, I I can send Bill a picture that we can put up on on the social media later. Yeah, yeah, that'd be great. I I, I have no idea what the flowers look like because I was always under the impression, like they say, it doesn't flower in Florida, but right. I. With anything biological, there is always an exception to every sure. Every these time. plants, these plants just don't read the books. No, not at all. <laughs> so you figure at least one plant figured out how to do it. Right. Yep. So I think that's about it for today. Everybody, thank you so much for tuning in. And we'll be sure to um share links to this presentation on our YouTube and on our Facebook. And I'm going to share it on the Air Potato Patrol Facebook. So if you'd like to check it out, go on Facebook and look up Air Potato Patrol. We do have a Facebook page and I will be putting up a lot more posts on there. I promise. I'll work it in my free time somehow. Uh, thanks for having me today. It's It was really a pleasure to get to share this experience with you and to to talk to everyone who visited us about air potato. Yeah. Well, that's great. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. And 
we will see you everybody here again next time you guys go ahead and hold on here for a moment so thanks everybody we'll see you again next week thank you bye-bye goodbye